Hello everyone, I'm Lydia. And I'm Sara. And this is Hitchcock Happy Hour's November special. Where for the entire month of November, we'll be discussing the evolution of film noir from the hard-boiled to the femme fatale. One cynical cocktail at a time. Cheers! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Lydia Jordan. And I'm Sara Shaw. And this week, <laughs> what are we covering? <laughs> Tell us. This week we are covering the super classic, moody, allure, glamour of the iconic 1944 film noir, Laura. And I'm so excited about it. Um, And I just have to lead in by saying we have a bomb-ass cocktail yeah, today. Yeah, so. it's so good. Lydia didn't even wait for me to ask her what we're drinking. <laughs> I was like, let me... It needs no introduction. It's <laughs> oh, so good, but... Give us the introduction. What are we drinking? <laughs> well, thank you. Well, this week we're drinking um, an Aperol Sour, which is really fun. It's technically an Aperol and gin sour, but it is literally delicious. I am obsessed with this. I love Aperol. Everyone can fight me. I know that there are other aperitivos out there. I am an, I am an Aperol stan, and I will not back down. No, you won't. They're at our graduation party. We had an Aperol Spritz bar. <laughs> so that just goes to tell you how. That's how much we love it. Um, Sara just went to an Aperol themed restaurant in Portland. Um, Sara, do you want to plug this restaurant so anyone who listens who's in Portland can go immediately? I really do. Thank you so much for asking. Um, Portland, those who live there and are into the food scene probably know about the restaurants Ava Jean and um, Tusk. They just opened a new restaurant. It's kind of an offshoot of Ava Jean right next door. I think they're actually attached and it's Ava Jean's more like casual pizzeria. It's called Chicoria. And it has an Aperol Spritz bar um, basically at the restaurant. It's like this really cute pizza place, very like old school 50s vibes. And, um, yeah, they've got, like, this amazing bar, Aperol's all over the place. So good. Highly recommend anyone that's in Portland. Check it out. Their pizza's also delicious. So, yeah. They have something on the menu called Chicken Tenders But Better. (laughs) Was it better? Yes. Can confirm. (laughs) Wow. I... I wish I was going home to Portland for Christmas because I was living vicariously through you and I have to say they really nailed the interior design on this restaurant. Um, it is, like Sara said, it's like a 50s retro, like you're in Rome and it's like Aperol branded. It is literally perfect. They have an so. Aperol fridge, like an Aperol sponsored fridge. It's amazing. <laughs> How it's do I just, get one? Aperol, I know, will right? you sponsor me? Uh, Aperol, sponsor our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we'll plug you um, every day. I really could have used them this week because our fridge was broken. I'm really excited I could even make this cocktail because we had nothing. Like, I actually should have taken a picture of this. I don't think my fridge has ever been so bare. I had to throw away everything. It was so sad. <laughs> That's really hard for me to believe, to be honest, that you have a barren okay. fridge. Well, I had to keep some sauces, but, like, I had to throw out a lot of stuff, and it was, like, pretty tragic. I like, That's pretty sad. I got, like, kind of emotional. I, like, collect weird sauces, and, like, it was hard for me. <laughs> I, can, a, I can understand that. What a weird that. thing. <laughs> I can understand that. Oh, we both just got very emotional. Sorry. Moving on. <laughs> tangent. Oh, my God. Sauce what? tangent. I'm sorry. Crying? Crying already? <laughs> 
Um, I will say though, we have been on a bit of a sour like theme these days. This is like our second, third sour I think we've done. And uh, you know, it's, I apologize it's for nothing because no. I think it's one of my favorite cocktails. Yeah, this one is of so the next good. sours that we do, I would love to try it with aquafaba. Yes, that would be a great idea. Egg white. It'd be I would nice love to, to do I'd like a, a vegan version, and also sometimes I just am not like. Sometimes an egg white kind of just feels weird. I Sometimes don't you don't, you're not really vibing an egg white in your cocktail, but this one, it's like so cute, foamy, and like with the color, it just, it looks very festive, so I'm, I'm loving it. It's really tasty. Um, anyway, shall we kind of dive in? We're going to go with our, our normal flow. We'll start with some background, do the plot, and I think kind of what we've been doing with these film noirs is actually breaking down the plot pretty in depth because they are kind of convoluted. So um, we'll probably do that and then just jump into the analysis. And I think what'll be really fun in the analysis uh, for this episode is to just spend a lot of time talking about the characters because that's kind of what the movie is about. So shall we dive in? I would love nothing more. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) So um, as we said earlier, we are discussing the 1944 film noir Laura. It was produced and directed by Otto Preminger, um, produced by 20th Century Fox. It stars Gene Tierney, David, uh, excuse me, Dana Andrews, and Clifton Webb, along with Vincent Price and Judith Anderson. Um, it received five Academy Award nominations, including Best Director, and it also won for Best Black and White Cinematography, which totally deserved, in my opinion, because it's yeah, it's so good. And it was actually up against Double Indemnity. It was the year that it was up against Double Indemnity. So, oh, very interesting. Yeah, um, the screenplay was written by uh, Jay Drattler, Samuel Hofstein, and Betty Reinhardt, and it was based on the 1943 novel Laura by Vera Caspri. So that's um, super interesting. There's a lot of... I think it will talk about this a little bit, and I think we see this in other uh, film noirs with similar female characters, is that there's there's women in the writing room on this movie, and that kind of comes through a little bit in a different way than in The Big Sleep, but... Um, I think that kind of comes through in this movie a little bit. So the filming is super interesting background on the production of this movie. Basically, Otto Preminger like went through it to get this movie made. Like he wanted to make this movie so badly. And he was like, I, I will live and die on a hill called Laura. <laughs> no, like actually. So he the filming began uh, April 27th of 1944 with Robert Mamoulian actually directing and Preminger was producing. So what happened was Daryl Zanuck, who was the studio head of 20th Century Fox, he didn't, him and Preminger didn't get along and he did not want Preminger to direct this movie. So he agreed to let him produce it because Preminger kind of like was the one that notified 20th Century Fox about the story and kind of was the one that was like, you should buy this script so I can produce this movie. Um, and he wanted to direct it, but they didn't let him. So they had Robert Mamoulian, um, who was also a very well-known director at the time, uh, directing this movie. He immediately had problems with the entire cast. <laughs> he basically <laughs> offered, oh, no. yeah, he basically offered uh, like zero advice and support to Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews, who were pretty new to being like leading stars in movies. They had been contract players up until this point, and this was like one of their both of them. This was like one of their first like, leading films, um, he allowed Judith Anderson, who was very theatrically trained, to kind of just, like, do whatever she wanted, and she just would play to the balcony instead of, like, reining in her performance, and he just, like, let her vibe, yeah, and then he 
pretty much ignored Clifton Webb, who plays uh, Waldo Lidecker, because he didn't really want him in the movie at all, so he didn't really give him any direction. So after watching the first rushes of the movie, Zanuck agreed that um, they, the movie was terrible. <laughs> it was like, basically, he had to kind of give in and let Preminger direct, because Mamoulian wouldn't do anything Preminger wanted um, when he was producing. So he fired Mamoulian and finally let Preminger direct. But he was actually unhappy with Preminger's first cut of the film, too. He wanted, uh, Zanuck wanted the movie to be given a new ending. So they filmed an entirely different ending for the movie in which um, it was revealed that Waldo Lidecker had imagined the entire story. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Which is very interesting. But so they screened that version of the movie. After a screening, after the screening of that version, a columnist um, approached the studio head and told him, I didn't get the ending. You've got to change that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And so... That is (laughs) And so, having lost again, Zanuck relented and allowed Preminger to reinstate his original finale, and he said to him, this is your success, I concede. (laughs) So it really, like, Preminger really went through it to get this movie (laughs) Wow, but good for him. Like, how good that must have felt at the end to be like, no, your original vision was right. I was wrong. At least the guy owned up to it. Yeah, you know? and he played the long game, too. Like, he really went through challenge after challenge and, like, everyone telling him he couldn't do what he wanted and finally, like, kind of just letting the chips, fo- like, fall as they may and everybody realizing that Preminger's vision for the movie was, like, the right way to go. Um, it was really interesting, though. He he didn't actually, fo- like, he didn't actually follow the, the book very um very closely in terms of the narration style and Caspery was actually pretty upset about it because it changed the tone of the movie and the character of Laura a lot and we'll talk about that a little bit more um, when we talk about her character but a little bit more on the background the music was composed by David Raxon who was like widely regarded as one of the best movie score writers of all time and this is actually one of the most iconic movie scores of all time it's the Laura theme is like very very well known and people probably have heard it and don't even know it's from this movie um it's used right now as like a jazz standard in over like 400 recordings from that era it's the jazz standard so it's really interesting um funny I read this story and I thought this was really funny uh Hedy Lamarr was actually originally offered the role of Laura, but turned it down because she thought the script was terrible. <laughs> I'm, you know what's interesting, and we'll talk about it. This is, I'm just gonna put this up front. This is not my favorite noir. Yeah, it's an interesting it, one for sure. It's a really, it's a really interesting one. Um, but that's that's interesting that she she felt that way. Yeah, she didn't like it at all. She thought the script was terrible. But then she saw the movie and then said that if she had known the score was like blended mm-hmm. into the movie how it was, she absolutely would have taken the role. She thought the score yeah. like elevated the movie so much more. Um, I mean, like yeah. you mentioned, this is so iconic, and it is. I love jazz. It's on so many jazz playlists. As soon as it started playing, I was like, I know this song. Um, it is so good. And it really does set the theme, the, the whole tone for the film. It's amazing. Yeah, and I think they play it, like, in the movie as a record a lot. Like, they play it, like, I, there was a term for that. I think we talked about it in Rear Window. I don't remember the term. But it's, like, music that comes from the actual, like, plot and this song is played, like, in the movie a lot, which is really interesting. Um, it kind of 
blends the illusion of like us being the audience and then the like plot happening. I mean, it's, it's very fascinating how they use the music in this movie. But let's kind of just dive into the plot and and talk about it because it's it's pretty interesting, pretty straightforward, but also kind of convoluted at the same time in a in a bit of a different way than than some of our other ones. So. It starts with New York City Police De- uh, Department Detective Mark McPherson, who's investigating the murder of a young, beautiful, highly successful advertising executive, Laura Hunt, who was, uh, it is revealed that she was killed by a gunshot blast to the face that pretty much obliterated her face. <laughs> you never see it, but when you think about it, it's like a very dark way to start a movie. It's a very gruesome crime. Yeah, and so she was shot in the face um, by a like a double barrel shotgun in the doorway of her apartment, um, and they identified her because of like her just being in her apartment. But her face was like there. They make note to mention that her face was like pretty much obliterated, so you that you couldn't like see the face of the person. Um, he starts interviewing different people in Laura's life, and he first starts with the charismatic newspaper columnist Waldo Lidecker, an extremely self-absorbed and pretty pompous older man who basically relates how he met Laura and how he became her mentor. Um, and he starts the narration of the flashbacks in the movie, which which go through kind of like his time uh, with Laura and like her upcoming as this, starting out as like a young executive like trainee into becoming like a or um, excuse me, an advertising training to becoming an advertising executive. So she'd become his platonic friend and confidant, but he was wishing for more and he used his like considerable fame and influence and connections to advance her career pretty fast. McPherson also questioned uh, Laura's playboy fiance, Shelby Carpenter, who was a kept man and also tethered by Laura's wealthy socialite aunt and treadwell at the same time <laughs> like this weird so weird weird situation um <laughs> treadwell who's like an older woman she's tolerant of her niece's infatuation with carpenter apparently out of her practical acceptance of carpenter's need for the affection of women closer to her, his own age <laughs> i don't know why that's important but it is <laughs> it, it like took me a minute to understand like what was happening yeah the dynamic is odd it's really weird and it's weird that it has to be her aunt like I thought it was like someone in their same social circle pretty much everyone in this movie besides Laura and like kind of Mark are terrible people (laughs) like they're all pretty terrible everyone is has very questionable morals I also think that it's hilarious that this is the role that Vincent Price plays in the film because I mean, if you're familiar, I mean, he has had such a like amazing career, but he's really known for his roles in horror films. So it's interesting to see him kind of play more of the, I don't know, playboy, like, you know. He's a playboy, guy. but he's also like a total country bumpkin. <laughs> this movie, yeah. like, he's his not scary is... at all. <laughs> no, so it's funny to, to then see that contrasted with roles in his career later where yeah. he's kind of like the king of horror <laughs> yeah it's it's so random could not be more different <laughs> yeah this was like definitely before he became famous too because he's like it's not the same vincent price at all it's really funny um but anyway so bessie clary who is laura's loyal and highly distraught housekeeper she's also questioned but is like very offended that she would be questioned because she loves laura so much uh through the testimony of laura's friends and reading her, reading through her diary and like her letters, McPherson starts to become obsessed with her and the memory of her, so much so that Lidecker finally accuses him of falling in love with a dead woman. 
He also learned that Lidecker was jealous of Laura's suitors, and he used his newspaper column and influence to keep them at bay. He often, like, wrote really scathing stories of them <laughs> to, like, so, ruin their reputation. So wild. It's very... The dialogue in this movie is amazing, first of all. I know it's not your favorite, but it's pretty fun. It's pretty good. <laughs> Waldo is, like... You just want to slap him. Like, he's the worst person. Yeah. He's so annoying, but it's just, it's he's so funny. He's very delusional, too. Yeah. Yeah, he's very grandiose and very pompous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one night, the detective falls asleep in Laura's apartment in front of her portrait, which hangs in the middle of the apartment, and um, also, which, it's it's kind of, like, mentioned really briefly, so if you, if you blink, you'll miss it, but McPherson has actually purchased the portrait for himself, um, and that was kind of like a, it was kind of like a very, they mention it really briefly, but it, they don't really talk about that anymore. I found that really fascinating. So he falls asleep in her apartment. He's awake. He's also like pretty, he's like drinking her booze. Like he's very comfortable in there. Um, he is awakened by a woman entering with her own key and is shocked to find that it is in fact Laura who has zero clue what has been going on for the past few days. Um, she, <laughs> She finds a dress in her closet that has belonged to one of her models, Diane Redfern. McPherson concludes that the body assumed to have been Laura was in fact Redfern uh, drawn there for a liaison by Carpenter while Laura was in the country. So basically Shelby Carpenter, Laura's fiance, had a dinner date with another woman in Laura's apartment while she was gone, and then the woman wore Laura's dress. It's really bizarre. But it wasn't even her dress. It was, like, negligee. Yeah, it's really, really bizarre. It's um, super uncomfortable. Right. Um. So now, with Laura still alive, unmasking the killer becomes even more urgent, and she becomes a suspect as well, and, like, immediately becomes a suspect, because her actions for the next few scenes are, like, pretty sus. So, at a at a party celebrating Laura's return, uh, McPherson arrests her for the murder of Redfern. Upon questioning her, he becomes convinced that both she is innocent and that she doesn't love Carpenter, which was actually, like, the ulterior motive for the arrest. He kind of wanted to just get her alone and figure out who she was in love with. He's like, so are you in love with me now? And she was kind of like, yes, honestly, yes, I am. I mean, it's a very strange situation. Um, he goes to search Lidecker's apartment, where he becomes suspicious of a clock that is identical to the one in Laura's apartment. On closer examination, he finds that it has a secret compartment. McPherson returns to Laura's apartment, where he finds Lidecker, um, who is there talking to Laura. Lidecker immediately notices that there's a growing bond between Laura and um, the detective, so he insults McPherson and is sent away by Laura, but pauses in the stairwell outside. McPherson examines Laura's clock and finds a shot- the shotgun that killed Diane. Laura is confronted with the truth that Lidecker is, in fact, the murderer. McPherson locks Laura into her apartment, warning her to admit nobody. After he leaves, Lidecker, who has slipped through the kitchen door, emerges from another room and attempts to kill Laura, saying that if he cannot have her, no one can. He is shot down by McPherson's sergeant, and his last words are, Goodbye, Laura. Goodbye, my love. And that's the end of the movie. very bizarre it's a really weird ending it's a weird ending and i don't know i mean it'd be funny to like i didn't think about i haven't thought about it but we could definitely like talk through like whether or not we like this ending over the ending of like it being waldo's like dream or whatever that would be really fascinating but i think um yeah let's kind of like just jump into the to the analysis because i think 
what really drives this movie is the characters in this movie. Like, it's a total movie, not a character film per se, but it's a, the whole, I think the whole, like, inner interest in, of the plot is these characters playing off of each other, which I, I find very fascinating. So it's a pretty unique noir because it's actually just your average, like, whodunit with a stylish, elegant, moody you know, witty film noir overtones. What's fascinating about it, though, what's fascinating about it, though, is that as the movie builds, you're gonna find out, like, you think you're gonna find out something bad about Laura to the point that, like, she must be the cause of the downfall of all these characters. Well, I thought it was gonna be, like, a Rebecca vibe. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you were thinking, but I think because it's kind of similar to Rebecca in the way that they, yeah, they build it up and frame it where it it is, like, so positive and everyone's so obsessed with her that I was kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop, similar to Rebecca, where you find out that she's actually, like, this terrible person and, like, was really nice to everyone else, but was, like you know, tormenting her lover or something. Yeah. Yeah, um, you you think that's what's going to happen, and you're like, it obviously kind of, like, this is a film noir, and it <clears throat> obviously has to kind of be that way. I mean, that's part of the mm-hmm. recipe of a film noir is having this femme fatale. And and it what's kind of fascinating about the film is that it never really does that. I mean, it doesn't really ever give us the like a femme fatale and it's kind of similar to the big sleep in that way and that the main woman is like a pretty strong in a different way because I want to we'll dive into Laura's character a little bit because there are some there are some things that I that I think are very outdated about her character but or about the writing of her character I should say but it's you know on the surface, it's pretty similar to Vivian Rutledge in in The Big Sleep in that, like, this is a very successful, like, career woman who's, like, just, like, vibing, living her life. Like, she's a total sugar mama to this, like, playboy guy, like, and she's in charge of everything in her own life and all that stuff. And she's, like, literally nothing, does nothing wrong. Like, she actually is very innocent in the whole entire movie. And everything that everybody said about her turned out to be, like, very true. Yeah, it turns out she was just, like, really nice and awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out she was, like, pretty amazing. Like, it's kind of, you know, it is what it is. So it makes her character, like, it's kind of, like, a weird jarring, like, you're kind of like, are you sure? Like, it's kind of... Yeah, I was like, can she be a little bad? (laughs) Is it bad that I want her to be a little bad? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's kind of weird because, like, the aunt would be, like, the closest thing to a femme fatale, but she's, like, not cool enough to be... (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, I like she's evil and bad, and like she she even makes that comment about like she thinks Shelby, uh, like everybody thinks Shelby Carpenter's the killer, like everyone just assumes it's him because he, like he just doesn't you know he doesn't really care. They're like, oh yeah, totally would be him, and he's just like, yeah, I know everyone thinks it's me, but it wasn't, so like whatever. But he's like super questionable all the time, and then like even Anne Treadwell, who's like, yeah, I, it's definitely him, and, like, I love him either way, so it doesn't really matter, because, like, I'm also terrible, so she's kind of wants to be this, like, cool, like, femme fidel- she's, like, the cool aunt, but is, like, not at the same time. She's giving me, like, um, she's giving me, like, the mom vibes in, um, Mean Girls. Yeah, literally. <laughs> What's the 411? <laughs> That's literally her, and she's just, like, acting to the balcony, like, it's project I'm just she, her character is so bizarre but um I think the setup of the film is super fascinating because like other film noirs it's not super straightforward 
but it's also not convoluted in the, in the sense of the, in the sense of the plot. It's mostly just that the characters are all like so quirky and their actions are so bizarre. But it kind of to me makes the film a little more enthralling and I, I I actually really like this movie so I think this is like the first time we've actually differed in opinion and I'm actually curious to think like why to hear why you didn't like not that you didn't like it but that it's not one of your favorites I'd be what what's oh, your right now yeah right about, now okay we can let's, wait until the end in. if you want but no, I just I would love to yeah, hear your I opinion mean, I think like I was really comparing it to more of the the Sunset Boulevards and the Big Sleeps. Like, to me, those are, like, yeah, they're iconic for a reason. For me, I think where this one fell short was I think that there were a lot of interesting characters in this film, but I never really got the connection, even between Laura and then the, like, detective. Mm -hmm. To me, it wasn't, like, a compelling enough, like, love story to feel believable. Right. Whereas some of the other ones, like, um, even, like, I would say probably The Big Sleep would be the most comparable in terms of, to your point, like, a strong female lead. But for me, there was just something missing there. And I, I don't know exactly what that was for me, but it just felt like, it it felt more like a play in some ways. If yeah, that makes sense. No, one hundred percent. Have that dimension to me that I think some of the other film noirs have to make it like go further. And I think everyone was a little bit overacting mm-hmm. in a way that kind of took you out of it a little bit. Yeah, if that makes sense. No, that te- that definitely makes sense, and I I think I get where you're coming from for sure. And I think I agree. Like I to an extent, I I do think that like. I think what would have made this movie even better and it, it I think would have totally enriched the experience is having two leads with like way more chemistry. I think there could have been more scenes with them together and just like more like sexual tension honestly because that's kind of the point of yeah. the film noir. Um and we'll talk about that with Laura's character and like the flaws of her character. And I I think the other issue with Shelby is like to me it wasn't even like it was like, there's nothing there. Like, he's clearly not the right choice. Like, you don't even seem to like each other. Like, it just didn't feel to me like there was enough, like, agency for a lot of the characters. Like, the things that they did didn't really make sense. And it just didn't... There weren't enough, like, chemistry between any of the characters to me to really make it, like, work. <laughs> yeah, I I definitely can see where you're coming from on that. And I do think the casting of Vincent Price's Shelby, like... It was an interesting choice. I think the casting in this movie is very interesting. And I would actually, like, I've actually thought about this before. And I think this movie would have been more compelling had Hedy Lamar actually played Laura. Because I, I think she's a better actress than Jane, Jane Tierney. Um, yeah. And I, Jane and I, Tierney's, like, beautiful. But I also felt like her performance, it just, it felt very, like, monochromatic. Like, yeah. it was very much, like... She is the perfect woman in a lot of ways, in men's eyes. She does, 100%. you know what I mean? It, and yeah, and that's definitely like meet, a huge portion of the movie for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's really all about the male gaze in this film. But yeah. what's interesting is I was kind of expecting like once she was introduced um, and was part of the film, like for there to be a little bit more there, I didn't feel like either her performance gave that depth or her character was written in a way that allowed for depth. She just felt very like... I don't know. She just felt kind of generic and it 
didn't really allow for like a deeper relationship or like you know she didn't have anything really interesting that I feel like she brought to the table yeah so we're gonna talk a lot about that when we talk about her character because there's there's I also have some opinions about that and it's like my internal conflict about this movie as well in that I I have like my you know just like my generic like there's a fun you know, entertaining movie that I like and I want to watch as just, like, a person. But as, like, a film buff, there I have, like, problems with how this movie was made, for sure. But I think, um, you know, I think what's really interesting is, like, breaking down these characters is you have, like, understanding what you actually have to work with here. And, like, just to kind of, you know, spell it out, it's, like, we have... What, what makes up this movie is we have... It, it kind of what makes the movie so quirky and like not fit is like we have everything everyone doing kind of like what they're not supposed to be doing like we have a detective who never really goes to the police station we have a suspect who is literally invited to like tag along as other suspects are interrogated we have a heroine who's dead for most of the movie and a man who's like insanely jealous of a woman no even- i mean Again, like, I also don't think that she ever did anything to, like, lead him on. No, he, also, it's, like, there's no sexuality. Out with him? He's, like, being, like, weird. He's gross <laughs> and he's old. Like, stop hanging out with him. And then we also have this romantic lead, like, theoretically, in Vincent Price, who's, like, this dull-witted, like, country bumpkin who's just, like, <laughs> vibing in Manhattan Cafe Society for no reason and nobody really knows, like, why he got there. And then you also have a murder weapon that is literally returned to its hiding place by the cop who says that he will, quote unquote, come by for it in the morning. I'm like, everything about this like whole entire investigation and plot is just so bizarre. Like, it, the way that everybody does everything is like... It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And like, even I think like even our access to the narrative remains very fluid and ambiguous like it's, it's kind of the movie's like very fluid it's just very strange and while it does I think like what's interesting about this movie and what makes it a noir it has a lot of noir elements like it does begin with a voiceover typical of noir but it's actually not from the hero or like the protagonist of the movie but it's actually from the, one of the prime suspects which is like Waldo Lidecker who's kind of an unreliable narrator and he kind of sets up how the audience is going to be perceiving the plot and he kind of skews this like bias you know about each character and we're getting all these perspectives of all these people kind of through him for the first time so each character is portrayed in such a biased way to the audience for the purpose I think that is like to achieve the higher goal of like like doing what Laura did to the characters it all sort of it it kind of sort of makes the audience like I think the point maybe it kind of hit, misses the mark now but I think maybe in 1944 the point was like you're supposed to think all these other people are crazy and that Laura is like perfect and she's the only like normal sane one and that might have I don't know that might have like hit the mark in 1944 and people might have not thought that there were like any issues with how her character was written at all um, but now it kind of, it just, it, it, it doesn't really fit, and to your point, like, that it kind of makes, like, nobody fit in, and I think because we're seeing it from the perspective of Waldo, he doesn't want any of these people to be part of this, like, narrative, 
And then no, we have he Laura. Want them to be part of her life. No, he wants to be the only one. Right, but he can't. Like he, so he spins this whole thing. But no amount of bias can make you know in his mind Laura fall in love with him. Like he knows Laura's like not in love with him, and so even in his like bias kind of retelling of their past do we get any chemistry between them like there's none <laughs> it's really it's really fascinating and so kind of i think you know moving through the characters is is probably the best way to to continue because they're all so so strange so i think we just start with detective mark mcpherson he's clearly like the typical film noir like cookie cutter hard-boiled detective yeah and he loves solving puzzles, as evident by his little game <laughs> he plays. Which is like the, the lamest way you could show that he loves solving things. Like he just plays his little baseball game, <laughs> his little like. He's like, look, it's harder than it looks. <laughs> his like non-electronic like Game Boy. Or oh my god! <laughs> it would be so much better if he had a little Game Boy, and you just hear like it's so funny it's so funny he provides this like weird deadpan like impartial perspective to the movie which i think had the plot like to your point had the characters all been a little bit more compelling like his contrast would have made a lot more sense um but it just is kind of this weird like he's super like emotionless and very deadpan through the entire movie And it's very weird because all of a sudden, I don't know if you felt this way, but all of a sudden there's a switch where then he becomes obsessed with her. Yeah. I don't think the way that either the script was written or he approached growing that, like it all of a sudden felt like very random. Yeah. And I think. You know what I I mean? Yeah. I don't think you saw that like progression. It was like one minute he was very objective and like he was just like, whatever, this is my case, like. Da, 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 da. and then all of a sudden he's like obsessed with her and it felt like he went from like zero to a hundred yeah I agree and I think what's really even interesting about him becoming obsessed with her is that like like you said in the beginning he's like super objective and his only goal is to like catch the killer because he's a detective he doesn't really it's just his job it's just like any other case but as the movie goes on he starts doing like very weird things and he's like spending a lot of time probably like unsanctioned time at laura's apartment where he's like reading through her letters and looking through her diary like drinking her alcohol like spending the night in there like buying her painting yeah and he's like it's almost like he's not doing it for the purpose of an investigation but throughout the entire like while he's doing all these things he remains so like cool calm and collected about it that it's it's kind of hard to even notice what he's doing and you're not really alarmed by it and so when you like all of those weird things that would build the obsession are there he's just doing it in such a deadpan way that you don't really notice the progression until it you realize like oh this man is like fully in love with this dead woman and then it's weird and yeah. you're like wait where did that even come well, from and i feel like the issue and i don't know if you agree because i feel like what the big sleep accomplishes in um Humphrey Bogart's character that really isn't here is like you see him working really hard you see the grind like yeah I don't think that this film really establishes that and like I I yeah. think that the big sleep is successful because he really is the main character and he's right. the reliable one who's object you know he's objective and he's leading you kind of through this really chaotic thing and I think to your point it's tough with the unreliable narrator that we have and he's really 
McPherson is really not the main character in this film at all. He's very, he's very tangential. And so I think that what makes it tough is ultimately it's his love story with Laura that we're supposed to be rooting for. But because he's such a side character and we never really like follow him outside of her apartment, we don't really see him like the work that he's doing on the case or kind of like the way that he goes about things in other ways. And so it ends up with this very like warped perspective that really doesn't give him a relationship with Laura beyond like this obsession that he's formed, which is like very sudden. And it it also just doesn't really give, I feel like the same like connection to like for us as like an audience member to this person who's kind of supposed to be the main character in some ways. Like I don't think McPherson should be the focus of this and yet no, he is and yeah i agree i don't i i actually would and we'll talk we can talk about this in a second when we talk about the next character but i actually would argue that waldo lidecker is the main character of this movie like oh, sorry that's what i meant yeah waldo is the yeah. one that they paint as like the main character but like i don't know that he should be like i don't think that that makes it compelling. no no it doesn't but then mcpherson is not a compelling enough protagonist i agree with you on well, that exactly. point He's and so, so- He's and so I boring. and I think that like had like, is he even a good detective? Right, like, and I think <laughs> I think had they just remained this like objective kind of perspective, but he just becomes more like stressed, kind of like Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep. Yeah, it would make more sense. But he kind of like his professional objectivity kind of proves to be susceptible to Laura's allure too, and he's now involved in all the chaos. Like he, so, he's not really this even like tangential outside perspective now because he's falling in love with a dead person. Or at least, like, the memory of her or whatever is being recounted about her to him. And so now he's totally, like, in it. He's not really this outside, like, objective. I'm just trying to lead the audience through this story. We are now being led through the story by all of these different perspectives. And I think that's why, like, I don't... I agree with you that I don't think Waldo should be the main character, but I think he kind of is. And I think his performance is kind of, like, the heart of the movie, even though he's, like, the most annoying character in the movie. And, I mean, like, literally, I want to, bef- like, I think it's, I think it's pretty iconic, his introduction in the movie. He's literally typing on a typewriter naked in a bathtub. <laughs> it's, and Wal- mean, Waldo is so amazing. <laughs> there are so many things that I vibed with in his lifestyle that I was like, honestly, this is, like, such a baller way to, like, establish your character. 100%. <laughs> like, he absolutely sets the tone of the whole movie as he is the narrator of the audience's introduction to Laura, just like he is of Mark's introduction to Laura. And I think Mark's purpose, and it might just be one of those things that, like, this movie didn't age well, is that I think the audience is supposed to kind of do what Mark did and that, like, we're supposed to think that this is an objective thing, that we're just following this case, but then we end up falling in love with this idea of Laura and we're confused and we don't know what's going on. And we're like, why did they cast this main actress to play this dead person? And then we're supposed to be like shock and awe at the big plot twist which I do actually think is a pretty iconic scene in this movie um the big plot twist in this movie is that Laura is in fact not dead (laughs) that she comes back I mean and it's pretty good surprising yeah Yeah, I didn't see it coming. like you don't see it coming for sure um and I think what is super interesting and I think you already kind of alluded to this is the comparison with the characters in the big sleep so when you have Humphrey Bogart Lauren Bacall and then also Clifton Webb who plays Waldo Lidecker and Jean Tierney who's playing Laura so it's really interesting because it's kind of a similar age gap so Humphrey Bogart was like in his 40s like mid 40s and Lauren Bacall was in her early 20s 
Clifton Webb is 55, Jane Tierney is 24, so there's, like, kind of a similar age difference between them, but there's zero chemistry like there is with, with Bogey and Bacall, and then yeah. I think that's obviously, like, such a random thing that happened to just make the Bogey Bacall movie so successful is that they just, like, happened to also fall in love in real life, and I think that's that's very lucky for those movies, because it did make the movies better. I totally agree with you there, because... The relationship between Waldo and and Laura is, like, very uncomfortable. Like, it's very awkward and strange and kind of cringy almost. And it's clearly one-sided, right? Like, it's clear that he's infatuated with her. Like, all of the things that he's doing are clearly because he's, he's interested in her and, like, is trying to, like, basically take down everyone else who's yeah. showing an interest he's, and like he's do her a campaign he's her like what's it the, like a svengali like her total like he like is totally manipulative and tries to control everything around him with like kind of a sinister like purpose i think and and also like hello true crime 101 the killer always tries to involve themselves in the investigation he <laughs> know, literally like, does he you... literally says murder is my favorite crime <laughs> it's like it's like a direct quote <laughs> You're like, and I quote, uh, yeah, <laughs> like he tells back. you exactly who he is. Um, but let's really, before we kind of wrap up, because I think the main focus of the conversation, uh, should be around Laura. Let's talk about Laura. And there, I think there's a lot to talk about with her character. Um, it, it's, it's interesting and also not interesting at the same time. So I think all the discussion around her character is very interesting while the character itself is not interesting at all. So, yeah. I think while, like, this is a film noir, it contains hardball detectives, out to solve a murder, the right type of, like, cinematography, all that stuff. There is no femme fatale, obviously, in the traditional sense. There's, there's no, you know, woman to send the protagonist on a course towards murder. There's no, like you know, predestination, like, laden with doom about, like, the woman, like, causing everybody to, like, kind of go down this, like, rabbit hole of doom. When we first are introduced to the main woman, she's already dead. She's, like, disfigured beyond recognition by a shotgun blast to the face, which is so... I don't... The fact that that got past the code, I don't understand. I mean, they didn't show it, but, like, (laughs) interesting. So what that leaves is, like, we don't even have an identifying body. So what it, like, the only thing it leaves is, like, the portrait, that, which is, I think, also the apartment and the portrait are, like, set, like a character in this movie to me. Like, I think yeah, they're truly. really, really important in this, in this film. And it, it kind of, like, it, the male fascination revolves around this portrait, basically. And that's where it kind of differs from Rebecca a little bit, is that we actually see the person who... So it doesn't have as quite, like, the ghostly vibe as Rebecca does, because in Rebecca we never actually see Rebecca, or even, like, a portrait of her or anything. But in this, literally, Laura's portrait is, like, the center of the apartment. It's, like, front and center, huge, like, framed in her apartment. Also, like, who has just a giant portrait of themselves in their own apartment? Oh, you don't, you don't have that. You don't have that. <laughs> it kind of made me want one though, but I was like, if only I could look like Jane Tierney, and then I would. No, literally, she's so pretty though. She's so um, pretty. but I think the main question, um, in the movie, which I actually find this quite fascinating, is does Laura Hunt exist at 
all other than as a projection of the fantasy fantasies and desires of the other male characters in the movie i think that's like the main question of the film i mean for waldo laura is just another treasure to possess and display because he's like has all these like you know trinkets well, and, and, and stuff he, like built her right yeah like, I think yes that's another another thing of his is like he made her the executive that she is like before he gave her the connections and taught her how to look and dress like she just didn't have that that power right that she was able to accumulate because of his mentorship right 100 percent. I, I totally i totally agree and like also for shelby kind of similarly like laura is just this like means of climbing the social ladder she's an expensive accessory to draw attention away from like he's quite cheap but nobody notices because you know he's he's with laura so nobody really questions him and then for mark she's just like another person to be saved basically so what's really fascinating that i that i found and i have not read the book but what i've what i've heard and what i've been reading about is that this is where the author of the book got really upset with the character of Laura because in the book, a lot of the book is actually narrated from Laura's perspective after she comes back from the dead. And so I think what that would have lent to the movie and what it lent to the book and why the book was so kind of creates this like, because the book is written by a woman, so it's creating this like quite, you know, three-dimensional female character. Mm -hmm. And what we get from that book is that we get a lot of the story from her perspective, which allows Laura to like, be more three-dimensional and have her own kind of her own say in how her own personality and character are being represented in the movie and in preminger's version which he was actually very insistent on not doing that is that laura (laughs) is basically this like sexless vessel for male projection i mean she's not yeah she's not even really seductive in any way no she's not i mean i think she's just she kind of has that, like, Grace Kelly effect of, like, you know, she just has that, like, beautiful face that just, you know, I think is so alluring. But, yeah, I mean, none of her dialogue, too, ever really posits, like, who she is as a person. Like, she's kind of chiming in on things. But, yeah, there's no moment where she's really, like, telling her side of the story. And I, and I think that is, like, a very interesting change. And I think that Again, like, I don't love that this is narrated from What's-His-Face's perspective. I think it would have been way more compelling to get her side of the story. And I think part of the reason why I really didn't connect with this movie is because even though she is positioned in a way where she could be a really strong female lead, she just isn't. Because she never really gets to be a main character in this movie, even though this movie is supposed to be about her. Right. <laughs> and I th- Laura. <laughs> but I think to your point on that is like, I would make the argument that Laura is actually a MacGuffin. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. But then if she's the MacGuffin, like, what's the point of this movie? Well, that's, yes. So I think that like, I, I think that's where it misses the mark. I think it's very fascinating to make her the MacGuffin. Basically, Laura's like this empty center around which the plot can revolve. But I don't think there's a plot to really revolve around it. Like, I agree with you. I think that it doesn't, it wouldn't really matter if there wasn't a plot if the love story was more compelling. Because I think in The Big Sleep, that's what happened. Like, the plot, like, nobody cares. Like, who, nobody knows. Nobody yeah. cares. The love story is what makes that movie so great. And I think... I to be fair, I do really like Laura. I think it's very entertaining, but I agree with you that I think it like had the love story been there, it would be a way better movie. And I also agree that like had 
they'd done the movie in a way that the narration switched between, which is how they did it in the book. It was between Waldo, Mark, and Laura. Like, all three of them were narrating perspectives in the book. That would have made the movie a lot more compelling to me as well. To get those three yeah, different perspectives. I, I also think it would have given Mark a little bit more dimension as well. Because he doesn't have any. And so... No, I, he doesn't. Yeah. And I think it would have, I think it would have, like, developed his character and allowed us to, like... Because I, I think his character actually in a lot of ways could have been similar to um, to Humphrey Bogart's in, yeah. in Big Sleep, where, you know, he comes in on a case, he's objective, then he starts to fall in love with, you know, someone who's involved on the case. And, and I think you really see that develop in The Big Sleep, and I think a lot of that has to do with... There were moments in this film where they could have developed that relationship further like they did in The Big Sleep, like in The Office where the two of them are having that really great repartee. But Mm -hmm. even though they have a few moments like that, it just feels really forced. Yeah. And it doesn't have that same, like... Yeah, it doesn't have that chemistry at all well, I um, think when they're talking. While it's also very clever, it's kind of the like hubris of the movie is that, you know, the first half of the movie, very Rebecca vibes because we're getting this like ghostly presence of Laura, the memory of her that she has no control over, which I think is very fascinating as the first part of this movie. And what would have made it even more interesting would have been like the second half of the movie from her perspective because what you get is like Laura coming back you know quote unquote from the dead which is a very clever spin and I like that in the moment but then what needed to happen was to further that that moment and give her time to kind of be her own character what happens when she comes back to life is that she's exactly how everybody described her she's just this like perfect person and I think you know she's hardly a seductress like she stands as an odd figure really amongst the women of of noir and i think really really fascinating i was reading this this um article about a review by thomas Pryor from the new york times who wrote um, a critique of this movie when it came out and he described tyranny as a letdown after the film's buildup of her role and and i think in retrospect i agree but i think like that negative point is actually kind of what the movie's about in that like her you could look at it as like when she comes back no woman could really match such an idealization of herself like she yeah. she couldn't really be anything else it wouldn't have made sense unless it had been written from her perspective and i think that's where the movie went wrong in that they didn't give the second half of the film her voice like they that's what they should have done and given her a chance to kind of develop as a character and I think that would have made the movie even more compelling instead of it just being just an entertaining noir it would have actually made it a way more compelling film for sure yeah I also think I don't know where you wanted to go from here but I was gonna say I think the ending of this film is Mm -hmm. also a huge letdown it's very strange it's very strange and I do think it's interesting knowing that there was a the potential for a different ending. Mm-hmm. I don't think it makes sense for him to wake up for Liebecker to wake up from a dream. Like I agree that that doesn't make sense, but the way that this film ends, it just feels like, yes, there's some dramas, you know, they realize Liebecker is in the apartment with her, but like his whole like end thing where he's like, Laura, I loved you. I always have, it just feels awkward. Yeah. It it's feels very strange. So awkward. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's strange because he 
like, while we knew that and while she knew that, it was never something that he, like, forced before. Like, it was never, I mean, it, like, clearly he's, like, a psychopath. <laughs> he's, like, obviously a sociopath or whatever, but he never, like, he always tried to make it at least seem that he knew Laura didn't love him and he was fine with just this companionship, but what would have made more sense is if that had been just what he was portraying to everybody else, but actually we as an audience were seeing another side, but we we never really were. I mean, that was just kind of, he was just kind of very manipulative and that was it. It wasn't like anything else that would have been, well, I don't know. And I, I feel like too, there could have been a moment because I mean, he, he went to the apartment with the intention to kill her because she was getting engaged to Shelby or that's what yeah. he believed. But, I mean, he had also done a lot of things where there were other men involved and he ruined them by writing mean things about them. Mm-hmm. He never did that with Shelby. He Mm-mm. took it to this really weird extreme that that also didn't really make sense to me. Again, like, at the end of the day, some of these plots I don't think need to be, like, perfect. But I, I think that what's weird is you just never got that, like, moment of understanding how he escalated to murder and I mean he he thought he killed her I feel like when she came back there should have been like a bigger shift or something because yeah. like well he, he remember, literally thought he murdered he literally her. fainted <laughs> because he was thought that she was dead and then he saw her and he was like oh this yeah. old man's heart like protected yeah <laughs> he probably thought I he saw know. a ghost it, just, it felt no, really I... awkward but I feel like there needed to be like beyond the fainting like a bigger switch in him where now he's like totally unhinged for whatever reason but I don't I think again the narration didn't quite sync up with that like I just didn't it didn't feel believable to me like Like, do you think that there's like a an opportunity for him to have been unhinged the whole time but the point was that he was just existing as a normal person and that we didn't know that he was actually that that unhinged or do you think it would have made more sense if he just snapped all of a sudden and we actually saw that snap happen? I mean, I think that there's a couple different ways that it could have been played. I'm thinking almost like American Psycho mm. would have been like a more interesting lens because I think that while we do see that there's a lot of delusion behind what he's saying, and I think we do realize he's not a reliable narrator. I don't think you ever get that like total sociopathic vibe. Like it's one thing to be obsessed with someone. It's another thing to escalate that to murder. That's pretty extreme yeah and I just don't feel like we ever get the rationale I almost think what would have been a better ending is if he did kill Laura yeah I agree and I think what's really fascinating (laughs) I think that would have been interesting well I think what's interesting about what you said of that like we never feel that he's obsessed with her but then he ends up trying to kill her is who is obsessed with her is Mark and if Waldo can all of a sudden snap what is Mark gonna do later like we don't know like how he how jealous and possessive he is like we don't actually know much about him and and he gets weirdly obsessed with her I mean he's more obsessed with her than most of these people and he doesn't even actually know her and I don't think they they write that stuff about Mark very like they write it into the plot very like nonchalantly where you kind of don't realize like how weird Mark's behavior is like he's so monotone about it that you're just like oh he's just you know falling in love with this person too bad but he's like no he's 
He's like living in her apartment. <laughs> it's it's yeah, very strange. Yeah, he's being really creepy. He's coming in there after hours. Like this is clearly inappropriate. Well, he's like, also taking her out of her comfort zone. Like when he arrests her at the party, he's like taking her out of her comfort zone into a police interrogation room off the books, where he tells her he's like, "I didn't even book you. Like this is totally off the books," just to get her alone and find out if she loves him. He staged this whole party with her friends who thought that she was dead to literally confront her and pretend to arrest her. Like, it, the whole thing is, like, very inappropriate. It's very weird, yeah, and it's I, hard to believe a love story after that. But then she, like, totally falls in love with him, and then it's yeah, so it's, it's kind of hard to believe a love story after that, for sure. I, I think that, yeah, there's not that, like, trust or, like... Or I think that what makes The Big Sleep so such a great and compelling story is I think you get that tension between the love interests where they both are really interested in each other, but there is that kind of, like, distrust. And they both are holding their cards close to the chest. Not here. That's what makes it interesting. Not here at all. Like, they trust each other pretty she's, quick. <laughs> she's so boring. That's why, and I think you brought this up, like, Laura is very much just a vessel of what men want her to be. Mm-hmm. Like, that is her role in this film. And that's why I think it would have been interesting if she had died. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, she wasn't even a character. To your point, she's basically a MacGuffin. She is, I, I think, think. it would have been interesting I agree. to have her, you know, she comes back. And then in the end, the obsession of these men is what leads her to ultimately die. And I think, to me, that would have been a really interesting ending. As opposed to, like, what ended up happening, which was super boring. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think what is really fascinating to me is that these men are all painting this picture of her and I think what is a more interesting character in the movie is the actual portrait of her than the, than her herself and and which I which is why I find this movie so interesting is that they do that but I, I do have issues like morally with how Laura, the character of Laura is written and I do I do feel it kind of a disservice now knowing what, what how the book was written that it didn't follow the book in that way because I think it would have elevated the movie and it would have given I think had the book been written in that way, Hedy Lamar would have like taken the role like I think it would have given an actress an opportunity to really play a very fascinating character and that we don't see film noir narrated by women so I think that would have been a really interesting perspective in a noir movie to have a femme fatale type I being think... narrating the film. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, to your point. Every film noir is narrated by a man. This is very much like a... I think that there's a lot of really intriguing female characters in noir, but I don't think... Most of them, I would say, are like, on the whole, fairly problematic. And I think Laura falls in that category. I think ideal situation, they did what the book did. Everybody, like, you have multiple narrators to, like, build out this point of view. Or if you want to stick to just Lidecker being the narrator, then kill her at the end. And that right. is... That is what I say. Right. <laughs> that is because my that does live out that does live out his fantasy. And if we're we're talking about his idealization and his fantasy, in his world he kills Laura. Yeah. So and that, I think it would actually be more interesting if McPherson was the one that killed her. Like he was yeah, trying that would to be kill Lidecker and that then would he be killed Laura. Because in the end, too, to your point, it's both of their obsessions that are problematic. Like Yeah. I don't ultimately want, I don't care enough about their relationship for her to get together with McPherson. And honestly, on the whole, I find him very creepy. Like, I don't agree. It's kind of that like Edward Cullen thing. Like maybe some people are supposed to find that flattering, but to have that level of obsession for someone you don't even know, like the idea of a person. But I wonder, yeah, but I wonder (laughs) if like in when this came out, if that was even a thing that people thought about, like if that was not weird at all, like, I don't know. I don't know. Like that's why I'm, that's why I'm wondering if all this analysis is very like 20, 
21st century. Because, <laughs> I mean, it, it, yeah. yeah, that's my, like, biggest thing about the movie is that you don't get that at all. Like, in, in, like, you don't get, like, it's not, like, a romantic relationship at all, the love story to me. And I, and I, I totally get that. I do find the movie very entertaining and fascinating. I, I do like it, but I, digging deep into it, yeah, there's, like, a lot of problems with it for sure. And, and I think I read, um, just to kind of like sum it up, I, I did read a really interesting quote from an article called Laura Noir of, uh, Laura Noir of Identity and Illusion is what the article is called. And this, I think this quote kind of sums up the movie pretty well. And it said, the middle class home, it, in regards to film noir, it says, the middle class home and family rot from the inside across much of noir. But in Laura, such a solid nuclear unit is hardly present. Preminger captures not only the breakdown of a family, but the failed attempt to make such a unit, as well as the retaliation against the offense to fragile masculinity. The passion come murder of noir turns to the thrills of identity and illusion, which I think is the point of the book, and I think the movie could have done better to make that point. My personal opinion. Yeah. Well, good discussion and a good way to bookend our film noir noir vember it's been really fun we've been having a blast in case anyone didn't realize that <laughs> that was our first one where i think we like debated a little bit honestly no i mean i'm glad we got to talk through it i think a lot of my reaction to this was kind of more like gut than anything else so it was nice to like i think have more of that critical conversation around why i think this has been such a fun lineup and again like i don't think that there was a bad film that we watched i i actually really enjoyed this film because i think it is really interesting in what it attempted to do um and to your point like it is an entertaining watch even if it's not like personally i don't think it's like the best film noir or it's not one that i would like go back to again and again but it was still it was still enjoyable and there is something fun about kind of like that murder mystery whodunit that I think yeah. you get satisfied with this film. I do th- I do think that like for people that aren't super into old movies and want to watch a movie that's not going to be super like slow or drawn out, like this is a good introduction it's a good film. One. It's also you know, not it, super long. No, it's not long. Nice. It has very witty dialogue in it and it's kind of funny at some points and it does have a very good... It's, like, one of the most iconic plot twists. So, it, I mean, it does have a good, like, whodunit element to it. Um, but I do agree. It's definitely... It's it's one that I enjoy, but it's definitely not um, of the caliber of, like, Double Indemnity or or The Big Sleep or Sunset Boulevard or something like that. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a classic noir. It has a lot of the elements. Jean Tierney, you know... I have issues with her character, but other than that, like, pretty, pretty entertaining film, for sure, I would say. But, um, that kind of concludes our November special, even though it's December now, <laughs> but, uh, we, again, we do want to remind you that we do know that our podcast is called Hitchcock Happy Hour, but we don't really care. <laughs> We're having We're fun. We're having a lot of fun. <laughs> and, it's... you know, we do, I think we do try to, like, weave in where we can, but there's just so many fun movies to talk about. And I think at the heart of this, what this podcast is, is really, it's really a film podcast. Film podcast. And yeah, we, we love I think film. We get a lot of influence from Hitchcock. I think a lot of these films influenced Hitchcock, and so you know. Yeah, but on that, but on that note, uh, now that it is December, it is holiday season, and so we are doing a holiday 
month special of some of our favorite holiday movies and um of a holiday movie that we have never seen before but probably will be one of our favorites what are we watching next week lydia i've been so excited about this. um i am so excited about this movie i looked up so many different like movie lists of the best holiday movies and this weirdly showed up on a few of them and it is an insect christmas from like 19 19- 13. I don't even know. It's going to be really weird. It's about 10 minutes long and we are going (laughs) to, we are absolutely going to wing it at the episode we do next week. Yeah, it's going to be a shit show and like I am going to get pretty drunk. It's going to be great. I'm so, I'm so, so excited about it. Um, but tune in next week as we, uh, stumble our way through the, the holiday classic and insects Christmas. (laughs) The, you know, it might not be a classic now, but it will be your new tradition. But it might have been in 1913. <laughs> um, but until then, cheers. cheers.